0: This episode of Tinfall Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world and, we hope, giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful creative people become, well themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions big and small that got them where they are today? If you know who Mani Chohan is, you already have a smile on your face. The chef and restaurateur is the force between Chohan Ale House and Masala House and other excellent Nashville spots. She is the author of Chat, Recipes from the Kitchens, Markets, and Railways of India. It's a cookbook that won an IACP award and was named cookbook of the year by multiple outlets. She's an absolute... Absolute dynamo competitor and judge on shows like Chopped, Iron Chef America, and Tournament of Champions, which she won. But before all that, Mineet was a self-admitted complete brat as a kid, running from house to house in her small community in India, bugging the aunties to teach her to cook, and dreaming of the day she would get to call herself a chef. You know that smile? I had one on my face the whole time when we talked about her journey from India to studying at the Culinary Institute of America, where of course she came out top in her class. We talked about the fine art of running a restaurant empire with her incredible husband Vivek, and how making mistakes is the best thing that ever happened to her. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of Tinfoil Swans, Manit Chohan and the fritters she will never make again. Ah, Manit, I am so thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for having me here. So, Manit, I always ask people first, who were you when you were 10 years old?
1: I was a complete handful of a brat when I was 10 years old. That's the truth of it. And now that I have a daughter who is a carbon copy of me, I spend a lot of time apologizing to my parents. I grew up in this really small community in India. It's a small town called Ranchi. And India has a very, each and every uh, region has a very distinct cuisine of its own. So I grew up in this predominantly Punjabi household, Northern Indian food, right? And my neighbors were from South India or from East India, from West India, etc. So what I would do is I would finish dinner at home, go over to my neighbor's houses, tell them that my parents hadn't fed me, so can I eat with (laughs) you? And I literally found a place for myself, at all their dining tables. But more importantly, I found a place for myself in the kitchen with the aunties. And I would be so fascinated as to how there were different spices which I had never seen in my house, different ingredients which I had never seen in my house. And to me, I think I realized this very later in life, but one of my favorite neighbors, she didn't know Hindi or English. She would speak a South Indian language called Telugu. And I didn't know that. But I spent hours in her kitchen with her. And later on, I realized that that's why I fell in love with food. Because it's the best communicator in the world. You don't need to know the same language, but you still connect with people. It makes me very emotional because I can do that. I can walk into a room. I can talk to anybody about food. And I formed that connection.
0: I've always thought that it is a beautiful, beautiful connector of people. I'm interested in why people like things. I'm interested in why they don't like things. I wrote a story recently about how my dad bought Mother Joffrey Cookbook that absolutely changed our lives and just it made my life bigger and more beautiful. And she was delving into all different cuisines of India. How many distinct cuisines are there? Because you were talking about you come from one tradition, people come from another tradition. there have got to be dozens, hundreds?
1: Hundreds, at least, because each and every state has a distinct cuisine, which depends on not only what is grown in that area, but also what historical confluences have happened, right? Like Goa has Portuguese influence, Pondicherry has French influence, eastern part of India has Chinese influence. So there is like the across the confluence of different cultures has resulted in unique cuisines, but also in each and every state, each and every region. I mean, you go from one house to the other, you might be making the exact same recipe, but there'll be something different about it. And I think that is what is the amazing part about cooking. Because when people ask me, they're like, what is Indian cuisine? (laughs) And I'm like, I can tell you what it's not. It's not curry powder, right? So I think it is like I say that I might spend my entire life delving into Indian cuisine, and I might have just scratched the surface.
0: It is a life pursuit. And if we can go back to aunties for a second, and every auntie is going to tell you what you got right and wrong, right? Could you tell people about aunties?
1: It's really interesting in India, growing up in India, even now, your parents' generation, even though you're not related to them, you refer to them as uncles and aunties, right? Your older sibling generation you refer to them as didi, which is sister or bhaiya, which is brother. It's a mark of respect, right? It's like over here in the South, we refer to anybody as mister or miss, right? But growing up in India at that time, I would be like, why are these aunties like up in my business? But right now, I miss that because they looked out for you. It was a community community. It was everybody coming together. It was us celebrating whatever were the, the festivals together, whatever were ceremonies together, being together in each other's happiness, being there for each other in our sadness. And all of that, right, like anywhere in the world, the underlying aspect is food. You're happy, great. Let's have something sweet. Let's have some mitais, which are like desserts that celebrates the happiness. Oh, you're sad. Let me get you something which is comforting, rice and dal. Or you're going through a tough time. Don't worry about cooking. We got you. That's how love was shown. And it is still shown around the world, right? It is through food. And that's why whenever I have conversation with people there's no other topic other than food because that's that's the underlying thing for everything and that's why I just absolutely like I'm obsessed with food
0: (laughs) you you're saying you're living in the south now have you ever heard the the term recipe like where it's it's almost the recipe but you leave out one thing in uh, are the aunties willing to give you the whole story on what is in a dish
1: absolutely not (laughs) so you've got to be that really nosy why are you doing this why did you put it, put it over here? What is the spice blend? I still remember there is this one auntie. Her food was just mind-blowing. And the only thing that different that she would add was a garam masala that she would make. I still do not have that recipe of the garam masala. I have tried to recreate it, but it just was. I think in that time, a lot of the aunties also were housewives and that's what their pride and joy was. It was their signature, their dish. So they did guard it with a lot of like gusto. If there were dinner parties happening and they would call up my parents and they would invite them. They're like, yeah, the party starts in at seven. But Manit, send her at three o'clock so that she can help us go. Wow. So I was like the sous chef, and I'm like, yes, this is more fun than playing outside or doing your homework. Oh
0: my goodness. And, and with all of this, what
1: was your relationship
0: with going out to eat with restaurants? And did you imagine yourself having a life in this as a chef? What was your understanding of what a chef is?
1: My dad loved and loves eating, right? So we would always be discovering new places. Now in the small town that we, we grew up, uh, most of the places were not fancy. They were like street food places, right? So I was really lucky in the sense that I was exposed to a lot of street food, a lot of food which was not really fancy. But that being said, in India, when I decided I wanted to be a chef, the only option was working in five-star hotels. Mm. Because that's the only place where fancy food was served, where if you're educated, that's where you would get a job. And there was a job security and safety also especially being a girl and being in the kitchen. That was always a big question mark because when I decided, people were like, what, you're going to work in the kitchen? But that wasn't considered elite job. They're like, study hard enough, you can be a doctor or an engineer, right? And I'm like, but I don't want to be that. So I think that's what it was. But I don't ever think that as a kid, I thought that I would have restaurants of my own or I would be cooking in restaurants. You would walk into the lobby and be, or and like one day I'll work here. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. I was
0: interviewing Jacques Pepin recently and he was talking about perception of chefs when he was growing up as just glorified mashed potato makers. <laughs> and we didn't go out to restaurants a whole lot when I, when I was a kid. My perception of chefs was mostly the people who I was seeing on, on TV. What was your television situation like? What was on the air? Was there anybody there who you saw yourself in?
1: It's really interesting. I grew up in a time when there was... One channel. It was a state run channel. It used to be only farming because that's what the majority of the audience was. And that was it. But later on, there used to be this show called The Cooking Secrets of the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. But they used to show this, and I would look at it and I would say that one day I'll be a student over there. And I did. I applied, I came here to go to the CIA. And then when I used to be a student over there, I'm like, one day I'll be one of the chefs giving a demo over there, which I did. And recently I'm on the board of trustees of the CIA. So I think the idea is that your dreams always need to evolve, no matter how implausible the dream is. If you wish it and you send it out in the universe, you have the ability of making those dreams come true.
0: I really believe in this about the importance of saying something out loud because like somebody is gonna hear that who can help you, who wants to help you. And again, like I said, you're a person who engenders that in people. How old were you when you went to the CIA?
1: I was around eighteen. It was a big culture shock. <laughs>
0: me, right? I can imagine.
1: When I decided that I wanted to be a chef and I come from a family of my dad is an engineer, my mom, she was a principal of a school, a teacher, my sister is an engineer. So I came from a very professional family in the sense that these were the normal professions at that time. So when I decided I wanted to be a chef, they were more naysayers who were outside the family, right? Like these uncles or aunties who would say that, If she studies hard, she can be an engineer. But the only thing that my parents said was, do whatever you want. Just make sure that you're the best at it. There should be no place for mediocrity. You're doing something, put your heart and soul in it. Because if you do that, you will be the best. So I did my undergrad in India, which was one of the best hotel administration schools in India. And in my final year... I asked one of my chef instructors, which was the best culinary institute in the world to go to. And without even batting an eyelid, he said the CIA or the Culinary Institute of America. In my mind, I thought I knew everything about America because I had read Archie comics my entire life. So I thought I was completely well versed with American culture and food. But also I had seen coming to America. And then you come over here and it's a completely different story because there are small, subtle things from $1 being 50 rupees at that time. And I could have feasts in 20 rupees, right? So I remember for the longest time, until date, that stays with me. Like, I don't go and buy a soda because a soda is a dollar and a dollar is like, that's two huge meals. So from there to realizing that I had zero idea of American humor, SNL, right, did not get it at all. I've just recently started getting it, but did not get it at all. But I think that also led me to volunteer for everything, right? I was the RA volunteered with each and every chef instructor on the weekend, more so so that I didn't have to spend money to buy food, being on the judiciary board to getting the highest GPA. I realized that this was an opportunity which did not come by many people. And it would be a shame if I wasted it. So I was like, this is it, I am going to jump in the deep end, and I'm going to learn how to swim. And that was it. I mean, CIA was Absolutely incredible. Give me very solid foundation of how to grow and be a chef and a business person. A chef had once told me something which stuck with me. He said, chefs make lousy business people. So when you start a business, look at it not only as a chef, but also as a business person.
0: I have such a perception of CIA that, of course, has changed over the years. When I was in grad school nearby... And I looked at CIA as this gleaming, fancy thing and always dreamed someday I will just eat a meal there. All I wanted to do was press my nose against the glass and eat at one of those restaurants. I'm curious about what was the program at the time, your educational program there? So you're learning to cook, you're learning all of these techniques. Was it largely French at the time? What else was there? What all was it? Was the totality of this?
1: Well, it's really interesting when I... I came to the CIA. And before that, when I was doing my undergrad, all my externships, I was so focused on being a baking and a pastry student. Because in India, baking and pastry hadn't evolved to the stage that it was over here. I would look at these fancy cakes. I would spend hours going through books. I would be trying to make all of these things, which wasn't happening in India. So I wanted to do something which wasn't available. And then when I came over here, I did baking and pastry art, which culinary is a foundation and baking and pastry also a lot of it is French based. And it was really interesting because they had international and international was maybe Asian or later on they got Indian. And for the majority of the time that I was on campus, I was the only Indian on campus. So I remember I had come from India and I like my friends, my classmates, I'm like, hey guys, Indian food is so cool. Let me take you. Let's go to an Indian restaurant. Keep in this is upstate New York at that time. Like, you know, Indian food still has a long way to evolve. And we go to a eat 95 all you can eat buffet. My friends are eating the food and they're looking at me and they're smiling and they're like, yeah, okay, good. And I'm like, no, this is not good. There is so much oil on it. This is not fresh Indian food that we grew up on, right? It has lost in translation somewhere along the way over the oceans and the land. So I think that's when the seed was planted in my mind that I really wanted to show people the true beauty of Indian food, the versatility of Indian food. And I'm thinking, what a gift you gave to your friends.
0: You expanded their octaves and (laughs) made it so much more beautiful. It's funny, I was able to find a few sort of like strip mall places up there that were pretty good at the time. But, you know, if there isn't the infrastructure of the right ingredients, then it can be pretty tough. We'll be back with more from Manit Chohan after the break. This episode of Tenfold Swans from Food & Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans.
1: Today, I am chatting with Manit Shohan. So so you're studying pastry. When did you flip? So the switch literally happened after I graduated, right? So right after graduation, I graduated on the top of my class. I still remember I went to go and apply for jobs. I got at some of the best places. But as soon as I mentioned that I needed my paperwork done, I was dropped like a hot potato. Because at that time in our industry, sponsorship and paperwork was not prevalent because there were so many people who were vying for an entry-level job. It was a very depressing time because now I've come from the best institute in India, the best institute in the world. What's going to happen now? So at that time, my uncle and aunt who were close to Philadelphia, they were opening an upscale Indian restaurant. And they were like, we're looking for someone if you want to, while you are looking for another job, you're more than welcome to come and work here and we'll sponsor your paperwork. That's the last thing I wanted to do was work at an Indian restaurant. But boy, you know, when things are written out for you, they're written out for you for a particular reason. Because that opened my eyes to how much this country needed good Indian food representation. And it was a fantastic experience not only did i learn the front of the house the bar cooking but we would do so many weddings so i learned mass cooking bulk cooking it's like working in a banquet during this time so you're near philly are you getting to travel at
0: all you know come to new york come to other cities and that and get to experience more of america during that time and eat other places
1: it was Basically, New York, where we used to go most often because Mondays used to be a day off. In the morning, hop on a train, go to New York, just explore basically whatever we had earned the last week, blow it on that Monday and then get back and and start earning for the next week. And
0: at this point, because you're a person of dreams and achieving the dreams, what are you casting next in your head during this time when you're working, you're getting experience? Where are you seeing you're going to go next?
1: I think a big thing which was on my mind was definitely my paperwork and sponsorship, because I knew that I would not be able to do whatever I wanted till the time I don't have my paperwork sorted. I think at that time I had kind of ruled out going back to India because I had worked in kitchens in India and I knew that most of my energy would go just validating my being in a kitchen as opposed to me doing a job. At that time I also started looking at Canada, but to me I just I wanted to work at a restaurant which was doing something unique, something innovative, a place where I could really showcase my creativity. So that was it. My sister and brother-in-law they lived in Chicago. After four years of working I got this Mazda Miata which I used to call my pre and just hopped and drove from New Jersey to Chicago and started like knocking doors, walking into restaurants, asking if I could stage. I wanted that experience. So many chefs have had that experience of after graduating, let's just go to Europe and knock on back doors and and ask to stage. And I always miss that. I miss the aspect of not having done that. But I'm like, okay, better late than never. So I tried to do that in Chicago and one thing led to the other and we took it from there. So where did it go? There was this young chef called Suman who had Asian Indian fusion place called Monsoon. So I went over there and then there was an opportunity that came up. Somebody was looking for a chef for a new restaurant and I'm like, let's Try it. So that was it. I think the interesting part was just to go ahead and just try my hand at different things. So I worked in Chicago for a couple of years, then moved to New York 2011. When we had our daughter, that's the time that I decided that I'm going to go entrepreneurial and do something for myself. And I think that's where the the leap into the deep end really happened.
0: And what are you considering to be the deep end? Is it restaurant ownership or being on television or?
1: Restaurant ownership, no questions about it. (laughs) And in all honesty, just because of the environment that I grew up in, to me, a job seemed like a more secure way to get through life. And then, of course, getting married to Vivek, Vivek definitely has that entrepreneurial streak to him. You know, when you have somebody who tells you repeatedly that, of course, you can, right? Why are you questioning yourself? I think that is what really gave me the wind beneath my wings. If
0: I can get personal here for a sec, the thing I've always thought about you and your husband, you're one of those couples who you each bring so much to it, that is even more than the sum of its parts. Like the two of you seem to function as this creative, unit and supportive unit. It's incredible to have a shared dream with somebody. And it's also something to go with the person who you love and slog through the everyday, not just at home, but in business. I'm curious, what is that like building an empire with your partner, with your spouse in an industry that is so notoriously brutal? and a wrecker of lives in, in a lot of ways. You two seem to do it with grace. And I think people who have this dream will want to know what is your, what's behind that? How do you do this day to day?
1: It's funny. I mean, we always say that it's the stupidest thing that we've done, all the smartest thing that we've done, right? I mean, living together, co-parenting, and then, and then restaurants. I think the foundation of it is that we very clearly realize what Each other's forte is. Like I was saying, business wise, Vivek is really razor sharp about that. There are things that he looks through in deals that I would never even think of looking at, or his people reading skills are absolutely incredible, right? When it comes to me, like creativity or multitasking. So I think we realize what each other's lane is. We respect each other's lane and really rely heavily on each other to to grow that lane. But it's also so fun. I remember that we were driving to Memphis, which was a three-hour drive. Between the two of us, we banged out an entire brunch menu. And wow. So those were the things that because you get each other, I think it makes it a lot more exciting. And that being said, it's not that we don't have arguments. We do. Yeah, this is what I wanted to get you. How do you get through that?
0: How do you resolve conflicts? And also, you're probably doing this with your teams involved as well. So you're having to do it not just on a private level, but on a public level that affects the structure of the team. What happens in those moments? One of us walks away
1: and cools down and walks back and joins the conversation. That's what it is. We always joke, both of us are Scorpions, right? So our tempers are always on a high. But I think it also, over time, you you start figuring out that, you know what, it makes no sense having an argument for the sake of an argument. I think we evolve with age, you mellow down with age, you, you, you start understanding things better with age. But absolutely, I do think that conflicts are very important for growth. I need to be challenged constantly to push myself to be better. So with this challenging
0: yourself and taking on these new things. What made you decide to do TV? That's a whole extra career on top of a career.
1: How did that start and how do you resolve that? I think a part of becoming a chef in today's day and age is being a very active part of PR. So when I was in Chicago, I would do the morning shows, etc., right? Like it was 2 minutes Make five dishes and show. Come to the restaurant, all of that kind of stuff. And again, this was not planned. It just happened very organically. When I came to New York, I went and competed for Iron Chef, and I went up against Chef Morimoto. <laughs> exactly. Casual. I always joke that I came a respectable second among two people. It's better than saying that I lost. <laughs> but I think that's how the door opened because somebody saw me competing. They invited me to be on the next Iron Share. From there, I was invited to be a guest judge on Chopped. Then I became a permanent judge on Chopped. And then once Chopped really started taking off, I went and I spoke to somebody at Food Network. I'm like, hey, I would love to do more. And they're like, oh, we didn't know that you wanted to do something else. I'm like, yes, I do. And, and that's how more doors open, And it's a lot of fun. And now especially when I'm competing and I'm on Tournament of Champions and then almost winning the Tournament of Champions. But I really love it because... That's where I think my creativity really shows because you've got like 30 minutes. Figure this out. This randomizer is crazy. Figure it out, right?
0: But in addition to actually doing really well on these competitions, we were talking about this a little bit at first. People feel like they have a connection to you and they know you. And that is a beautiful thing, but that can also be a lot. I imagine, parasocial relationships and stuff. How do you process that when people want a piece of you all the time?
1: I approach it from a lens of gratitude. It's taken a long time to reach here. It's taken a lot of sacrifices to reach here, right? But I also look at it from the aspect of the people who are approaching me. I just did a cooking class on Saturday and there was a lady who came up to me and said that I watch you on TV all the time and I was worried to come to this cooking class. I was like, why? She's like, usually when I meet people, I have a perception of them and they always let me down, right? Oh. They're not as gregarious or as lively or as bubbly. She's like, thank you for not for not letting that perception of you just fall through. And to me, the only thing I can say is that this is essentially who I am. I cannot put on another persona for being on television. It takes too much of effort to do it. So I enjoy people. I've always enjoyed people. That's a really, really lovely thing.
0: I'm remembering when I was on my way to the Food Wine Classic last year and I met a woman. She didn't have a ticket. She wanted to go and she recorded a little video for you because she wanted you to know what you brought to her life. And I think you recorded a video back for her. And it really meant the world to her to have that. If you could... Make a video like that for this 10-year-old self who is in the auntie's kitchens having dreams of of something else. What would you say to her, to 10-year-old Manit or 18-year-old Manit as she's going off to CIA? What would you tell her?
1: I think the biggest thing that I would say is don't let your mistakes deter you because mistakes are the most important learning tools in your life. The amount that you're going to learn from your mistakes, you will not learn from your successes. So embrace those mistakes. Don't repeat them, but embrace those mistakes and learn from them and grow from them. Don't let them make you dejected. I think that's what I would tell the 10 or the 18-year-old.
0: Yeah. Is there sort of a, when you're in one of those moments, how do you get past that? Is there something you do?
1: I don't obsess over it. I think what my mantra has been that the moment that I am in is going to get my 200%. It's not going to get 50% that I'm thinking of what happened yesterday and what's going to happen tomorrow. No, this is going to get 200%. Once it's done, it's done. Move on to the next task. So I'm a very task oriented person, a very checklist oriented person, right? Like you're like, okay, done, done, done. So even like, for example, when I'm competing, it is so stressed, I'm wound (laughs) up. But once I'm done, I'm done on to the next thing, right? Is it another round of competition? Or am I going to the next event? I think also need to have a little bit of a thick skin of not trying to take a lot of things personally. You're like, as long as you've done your best, there is nothing more that could have been done.
0: I think I'm running off after this and getting a 200% tattoo. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a beautiful way to go through life. And I have to ask, because you brought this up and because I ask people about fictional characters, are you a Betty? Are you a Veronica? Which Archie character are you?
1: I'm a Jughead.
0: Yes! (laughs) Tell me why you're a Jughead.
1: Oh, because Jughead's life revolved around food. And that is basically what my life is revolves around food.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm getting you that little crown hat. <laughs> this makes me so happy. And we have a question here also from a colleague here named Charlie Stone who got so excited when he saw your name. What is the coolest thing about being a host on Chopped and what is the worst part?
1: The coolest thing is that I have learned so much over the last 13, 14 years. When you start cooking a cuisine, all you're doing is that you are thinking of the ingredients only in that cuisine. Because I have been on shop and because the baskets have been so varied, I have learned about ingredients from different cuisines things that I would have never played with, things that I would have never known about. But because of Chopped, I have gotten to know those ingredients. And that is incredible. The other cool thing about Chopped is the contestants. Just the tenacity of people, the creativity of people. It gives me so much hope about how delicious the food future in this world is going to be because people are so creative. And the toughest part is the basket ingredient, the exact same thing. (laughs) There was recently a viewer's choice baskets where the first course had pork uterus and the second course had rooster testicle soup or like Rocky Mountain oysters or balut. Like those are things which you appreciate those being delicacies in other parts of the world. But I think it takes a lot. I cooked
0: pork uterus in an instant pot once. I did it and I'm not positive I'm going to do that again. I think I made bow with them and they were really delicious. But wow, I needed that pressure cooker. <laughs> I mean,
1: like, imagine 20 minutes and then when Ted says yours use a little or a lot and then when people embrace it and give you like pork uterus fritters, you're like, what?
0: But I bet they were the best pork uterus fritters you have ever had. <laughs> uh, they were
1: the only pork uterus fritters that I've ever had or will have.
0: <laughs> So you came from fancy hotels and, and all of that, you know, the name of the podcast, Tinfoil Swans. Do you have any association with what is a tinfoil swan moment to you?
1: In New York, Vivek and I, I think we had gone to, again, save, saved all our money, had gone to this one restaurant. I don't even know the name of it. And a lot of food was left. And they asked us that, would you like to to pack that? And we're like, yeah, and then there are these like <laughs> tin swans which come up, and both of us are looking at each other because it was a it was a very new concept for us, and we're like huh. And then we got really inspired. We're like, maybe this is what we should do at the restaurant, but I'm glad that we don't. But yeah, it was a fun memory.
0: Oh, that makes me so happy because people either really know it or they really don't. And
1: thank you for always
0: sharing your heart and, and your soul and just everything. And please give Vivek my huge love. I can't wait to dance with him in cool shoes. <laughs> it has been. He
1: is so ready, putting on his dancing shoes.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Manit Chauhan. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast, leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. And you can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. And when I say we... This is our incredible production team. Thank you so much to them. Lottie Le Marie, Dominique Arciero, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next week for my interview with David Chang. Take care of yourselves until then.